If you join me in Bible study today, please open up to the book of Romans, to chapter 9, to verse 8. Verse 8 begins, that is, which means we have to back up and see what is. Starting in verse 6, it says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The man's name when he was born was not Israel, it was Jacob. God renamed him Israel after they had that wrestling match. And Jacob beat him. Which lets you know, yeah, God threw the match, of course. It was all a big picture of how when Jacob meets God face to face, there's a change in his nature. And after that, he's called Israel. And his descendants are referred to either as Jacob or Israel, depending upon their faith. So when it says they're not all Israel who are of, us, or are of Israel, being some of them are Jacob. Jacob without faith, Israel with faith, with faith. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, meaning being a physical descendant of Abraham. That's not what God's looking for says, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. And that brings us to verse 8. The seed of Abraham that matters to God are those with the faith of Abraham. Those with the faith of Abraham. We looked at a lot of those scriptures last week. Verse 8 says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. They're not the ones God has adopted. God didn't adopt Abraham's physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants, the ones that are saved by faith. Does that mean if you're born a Gentile and you get saved, you become a physical descendant of Abraham? No, you become a spiritual descendant of Abraham, and that's what God's looking for. It says, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Why are they called the children of the promise? Because Abraham believed the promise. When it says Abraham believed God and God accounted him for righteousness, it means that God promised Avram. Exalted father is what Avram means. And Avram was saying, but I have no children. I have no heirs. And God said, oh, you're going to have so many descendants. They'll be like the stars of heaven or the sand of the seashore in number. And Abraham believed it. And God accounted him for righteousness. So the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Verse 9 says, for this is the word of promise. This is the promise that God made. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Abraham and Sarah married. They've been married a while. What's so significant about the fact that she's going to have a child? She never had children. And she's 90 years old? And he's 100 and they've never had a child? Yeah, okay. That makes it a true miracle. Why didn't God do this when they were 20 years old? Because nobody would have seen the miracle. They wouldn't have recognized the miracle, even though all children are a miracle of God. But when he's 100 and she's 90 and they've never had kids... That makes a whole new rule in the legal field when it comes to laws about wills and testaments. Yeah, okay, but that's another day, another day. 
So at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 17 and look at the promise. Genesis chapter 17. Where did God promise Abraham to send us like the stars in heaven and the sea shore sand? Genesis 15. That was two chapters ago. They haven't had a child yet together. So what does Sarah think? We got to help God. Maybe have, have him have a child by my handmaid. Maybe that's what God meant. He just wasn't very clear. What does God say? Let's look at Genesis 17, verse 19. Is that what God had in mind? No. Verse 19, then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Yitzchak means what in Hebrew? Laughter. Why would you want to call a kid laughter? Because Sarah laughed. She says, I will establish my covenant with him. But Abraham had said, why don't you establish the covenant with Ishmael? But God said, no. Because Ishmael was not the child of promise. So I'll establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. What's everlasting mean? So whenever you hear a preacher talk about replacement theology and God's done with the Jews, he kicked them out, he's done with them, what do you say? God said an everlasting covenant, go read your Bible. And with his descendants after him. Let's go to Genesis 18. Genesis 18 verse 10. And he said... I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. What in the world does that mean? In nine months. That's how long it takes to have a baby. Why didn't he just say in nine months? Because they didn't have biology classes. They just knew that eventually a child would be born. and say, hey, I'll be back. And behold, your wife shall have a son. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah are old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Hey, wait a minute. God said you'll call his name Isaac in chapter 17. Sarah doesn't laugh till chapter 18. No, but Abraham laughed in chapter 17. But Abraham laughed too. Ah, they both laughed. I think if I was 100 and God told me I was going to have a kid, I'd laugh too. Yeah. But it goes on to say in verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. They say that the child was born on the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah even. Why would they say that? Because he said, at the appointed time. So his birth at this particular time is associated with the appointed times of the Lord. Very interesting. Let's go to Genesis chapter 21, verses 2 to 3. 
For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time, the appointed time, the Moed, of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. God promised. Abraham believed it. God delivered. What more do we need to know? What does God do when he makes a promise? He keeps it. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Paul uses the birth of Isaac as an, an explanation, and a derash, if you will, in Hebrew. A homily, a commentary, an explanation of why you cannot be saved by works of the law. Verse 21 says, tell me you desire to be under the law. By under the law, he means saved by the law. Saved by works. Saved by our own efforts. Do you not hear the law? When he says, do you not hear the law, he means go back and read Genesis. Genesis is part of the Torah. The Torah is Genesis through Deuteronomy. If the Torah has been abolished, we rip the first five books out of our Bibles. Let's not do that. Verse 22, for it's written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman. What was her name? Hagar. What was that child's name? Ishmael. The other by a free woman. That was Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That is through human effort. But he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. It corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is because the rabbis were teaching that you must earn your salvation through works. Is that right? That is a wrong doctrine. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. That's talking about the new Jerusalem that we look forward to at the end of the millennial kingdom. Do you want to be there? You don't get there by your own efforts. You don't get there by earning it. Salvation is by faith. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. This is from Isaiah. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Meaning, we are saved by faith. But as he who was born according to the flesh did then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit even so it is now he means that the rabbinic Jews are persecuting the believing Jews why? out of jealousy out of jealousy verse 30 nevertheless what does the scripture say 
cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Which means, if you try and earn your salvation by works, you have done nothing. But you are on the path, the road to perdition. So then we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So there is a lot to be learned from the story of the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. And why God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son. In Genesis 22, because Isaac is the son of the promise. The one that was born out of faith. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9, we're up to verse 11. Or 10, we'll do 10 first. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not having been born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. These verses cause a lot of confusion, a lot of questions. So let's break them down. Starting verse 10. Rebekah was the wife of who? Isaac. When she got pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. Who are those twins? Jacob and Esau. Before they were ever born, God told her that the elder, which turns out to be Esau, would serve the younger, who turns out to be Jacob. Why? What had either child done at that point to earn anything? The answer is nothing. So what does it mean by, by election? Let's talk about election. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Verse 15. You all know Acts chapter 9 is where Saul gets saved. And afterward is called Paul. And in verse 18, 16, 15, what's that number? It's a five. But the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, who didn't believe that Saul was really saved, said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. See that word chosen? That's the same word as election. The same Greek word, they simply chose to translate it differently. But that's what election means, is chosen. That's why Israel is called God's chosen people. He chose Abraham to come out of the Ur of the Chaldees, to come across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, to walk away from pagan idolatry, and to serve the true and living God. God chose Abraham and his descendants. Unfortunately, a lot of his descendants didn't choose God. 
So election or choosing does not mean that all of the people who were chosen will choose God and come to serve him. I wish it did. But why did God choose Saul? He was already zealous for God, but without knowledge. What did he need? He needed the knowledge of who Yeshua really was, that the death, burial, and resurrection was true. And Saul had been persecuting believers. Did Saul ever suffer persecution for that later? Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. How many of you have ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Remember when Tevia says, couldn't you choose somebody else for a while? Yeah, but <clears throat> when God chooses, God never changes his mind. But the fact that God chose Saul, could Saul have said no? Could Saul have done like Jonah and gone fishing? This is where we would have stopped reading about Paul. But Paul was smart enough to go, uh-oh, I've been on the wrong horse. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 1 and read more about this verse, this word in particular. Yeah, I don't want to wind up in that fish's belly. He knew the story of Jonah, didn't he? When God says go, you go. But you do still have a choice. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. There's that word election. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers, meaning imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So they were elected by God. They were chosen by God. But how did they become believers? by choice they heard the gospel they responded to the gospel they became followers became means they chose became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. How did Paul say, we know that your faith is real? Because they put it in action. Exactly. 
For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. So God elected or chose those who would come to faith by him through the shed blood of our Messiah Yeshua. Look also at 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter's after Hebrews. 2 Peter chapter 1. There's also James to get by. Verses 1 through 15. Again, looking at that phrase election. Because there's some people who teach that if God has chosen you, you don't get a choice. You don't get a choice. God makes you into this nice young little Christian and off you go. Second Peter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Yeshua the Messiah. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. I put in a word in there. Which word? I want you to look at those words again more carefully. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Did he just call Yeshua God? Yes, he did. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Yeshua our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. How can we be partakers of the divine nature? When the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we follow in likeness of our Messiah Yeshua. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things of yours and are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Does verse 9 say we should stop sinning? And we should start walking uprightly before God? It most certainly does. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. What's he mean to make your call and election sure? If we were called by God, do we still have an opportunity to accept or reject the call? We most certainly do. That's why he uses the word sure, to make it sure. It means to maintain your faith, to let your faith grow, to walk in it, to make it obvious to the world. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. 
It almost sounds like this scripture in Philippians that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because there's that word if, right? In verse 10, right before verse 11. Verse 12, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Why does Peter remind them always? That means over and over and over again. Because we tend to forget. You hear all kinds of things. And you begin to wonder. It says, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, by which he means this earthly body. To stir you up by reminding you. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Peter was going to die and he knew it. Just as our Lord Yeshua the Messiah showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. How did he do that? He wrote the letter that's still in our Bibles today. To remind us that God chose us, but we also had to choose him. And we must make that election sure. We must be steadfast. We must never give up the faith. You you cannot earn salvation. Salvation is by faith. But if you're saved by faith, what does that produce? Works. Works do not produce salvation, but salvation produces works. Even in that first sentence, he shows? shows, Through the word bond servant. servant. He had a choice. What's a bond servant? Bond servant is one who was a slave, has been set free, and chooses to continue to serve the master by choice. Which is your point exactly. He had a choice. There were three kinds of slaves back in those days. So a slave that had been bought um, had a shackle around the wrist or the ankle. One who was then set free had the shackle removed and they were free to go. If they chose to remain, then the earlobe was put against the door frame of a house and it all was run through it. Yeah, ow, ow, ow. But that was an indication to everyone who saw them. I serve because I choose to serve. Paul called himself a bondsman. Peter calls himself a bondservant. And you and I, we were not in slavery. We chose to become a servant of God. And what was the indication back in the biblical days of that? That was the keeper. That we serve God because we choose to serve God. Oh, I, I'm getting all excited here. I forgot. Let's go back to Romans. We're in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. To summarize this, let's go back to Genesis 25. We read through the verses. Let's go back to Genesis 25 to see where they got these topics. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that in the New Testament they cite from the Old Testament? If you, that's what it says, that it's there for our learning. So let's learn from it. Genesis 25. Verse 23. We'll even back up a little. Verse 19. 
This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padana Ram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Padana Ram, where do you know Padana Ram from? That's where Abraham settled before he went down into the promised land. So this, these are relatives of his that he sends for a wife. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Hey, just like Sarah was barren, Rebekah's barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. Which means what? She's going to have twins. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire with the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And it first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. So? What does Esau mean? Harry. That's why they named him Harry. Because he was Harry. Afterward his brother came out. And his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Which means the planter. Or Fink. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. How old was he when he married? Forty. How long did he wait before the children were born? Twenty years. Let's go to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Verses 2 to 5. We just read in Romans that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. First thing I want you to know is you can't think in English like that. In English, love and hate are emotions. In Hebrew, to say he loved one and hated the other means he put one above the other. He put Jacob above Esau. It doesn't mean he hates and despises Esau. So verse 2 of Malachi 1 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now let's stop and go, why? Why has the descendants of Esau been the subject of such indignation by the Lord? 
Because they have been a thorn in Israel's side since the day the kids were born, essentially, right? Esau's grandson is Amalek. What did the Amalekites do when Israel came out of Egypt? Did they attack the strength of the force? No. They attacked the stragglers, the sick, the elderly, the children, those who couldn't defend themselves. They have been from the beginning trying to take from Jacob that which God gave him. That's where the wasting his mountains comes from. That's where the indignation of the Lord comes from. When he says, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever, give me some of Esau's descendants today. What would we call them? The Palestinians in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, they're still attacking Israel. Why? Why do they want to drive Israel into the sea? Because God gave the, the blessing to Jacob. And they want to take it back because they think it was stolen. But what does the scripture say? It was not stolen. Esau despised it. Did God know that before the two children were even born? Sure he did. Whom he foreknew. Okay, back to Romans chapter 9. Verse 7 says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. How did Esau treat God? With contempt. Did they worship God, or did they set up pagan idols from the beginning? From the beginning. Yeah, and brought in all those idols, Moloch and all those. Did God know they were going to do that? Yeah. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Question mark. Is there unrighteousness with God? Mejanoito. Certainly not. Because God did not just know what the children had done up to that point. But they knew what those children and their descendants were going to do through the end of time. And God told us all the way back in Genesis that Amalek would never have peace with Israel. But that's an important point there. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? I can't tell you how many people have, I've had tell me that God is not fair. God is not fair. He won't let me do everything I want to do. He's not fair. Let's take a look at this scripture. Let's go to John 7 verse 18. That's the very nature of the name of the Lord. I will be whom I will be. Meaning what? I am to you how you are to me. And the way Jacob was going to respond to God was far different from the way Esau was going to respond. John 7 verse 18. 
He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. This is Messiah speaking. He says, God has no unrighteousness in him. Why is Messiah having to say this? Because people are accusing God of being unfair. I'm sorry? Well, since Yeshua is God, yes. But he's saying that God has no unrighteousness in him. Um, if you back up to verse, seven, verse 16. Yeshua answered him and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I know they're using a lot of him and he's and some are capitalized and some are not. But if you go back to verse 12. Yeah, some said he's good. Others say no, he's deceiving the people. Yeah. If there's no unrighteousness in God and Messiah is doing what God sent, there's no unrighteousness in Messiah either. You're absolutely correct. But the point is, if ever we say, God, you're not being righteous, we're wrong. We're wrong. And I think that's the purpose of the millennial kingdom. When it comes time for the great white throne judgment, people are going to say, it's not fair to condemn me. The devil made me do it. I didn't have a choice. But for the thousand-year kingdom, Satan's bound away. And what do people do? They still sin. So what does that say to the universe? We sin because we're sinners. That's why heavens and earth have to be refined by fire. Absolutely right. Let's look also at Romans 118. Romans 118. Once we get raptured and have escaped this body, we will not have a sin nature anymore. I'm looking forward to that. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God, that's the tribulation period, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Well, it's not just the tribulation period, but that's the point of the tribulation period. But the wrath of God is revealed against whom? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God is not unrighteous. God pours out his wrath on those who are unrighteous. And it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See that word all? So if you hear a theologian say, now that you're saved, God doesn't care what you do from this point forward. Just shake your head and walk away. It's interesting if you keep reading. It's, talking it's interesting if you keep reading. It's talking about how these unrighteous people try to suppress that there is a God. 
how these unrighteous people try and suppress there is a God because if there is a God, then then they're sinners. Yep, there's a big push on all sides to, to suppress the fact that there is a God at all. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it ties right back to what we're reading right here. Yeah. Oh, on one of the teachings I watched this week, they showed a new version of the Bible that has just been published. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a rainbow version of the Bible that says God is a sinner and a liar. That's what their Bible says. Yeah, they'll find out one day. That's for sure. Romans 3, 5. Yeah, there in verse 20 it says, For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, so you can't deny it. There will be no standing before God and saying, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. That's not going to work. Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. And the answer? Mejanoito. Certainly not. Certainly not. God is not unjust when he pours out his judgment upon the unrighteous. He gave us every opportunity to repent. He even sent his only begotten son to suffer and die for us. So if we end up going to the lake of fire, whose fault is it? It would be ours. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he even gave us a book. That tells us that people will say what? It doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't apply to me. Don't do that. You don't have to be righteous anymore. Yeah, well, that's not what my Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. There is no chapter 2, verse 19. Oh, oops. <laughs> I wasn't in Timothy. I was in Thessalonians. <laughs> okay, there it is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. What's this seal mean? It's set in stone. It's not going to change. It's inviolable. The Lord knows those who are his and... Let everyone who names the name of Messiah depart from iniquity. That means we can just keep sinning, doesn't it? No, it's just the opposite. Let everyone who names the name of Messiah depart from iniquity. What does depart from mean? Go far away from it. Don't participate in it. Don't walk in it anymore. It's not right. Back to Romans. I mean, you can deduce from that the ones who know the Lord knows who his. You can deduce from the fact that the Lord knows those that are his are the ones who have departed from iniquity. Oh, you're absolutely right. Give me another verse in 1 John. 
In 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. I like verse 4 too. 1 John 3, 4 tells us what sin is. Sin is lawlessness, but verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. That's kind of clear, isn't it? Not a lot of room for argument. But if you back up to verse 7, it begins... Little children, let no one deceive you means what? There are going to be false teachers who will try to deceive you. It says in the scriptures, he who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Okay. Back to Romans chapter 9. That was verse 14, so it must be up to verse 15. For he, meaning God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Have any of you looked for those words back in your Bible? You won't find them. What they did instead was to mistranslate the Hebrew so that you might not see this. But keep a finger. This is Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. What does that mean, I am who I am? Not much, does it? Just means I exist. Hey, our God is I exist. But now go back to Romans 9. This is what it really means. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy now I have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So on whom will God show mercy? Does he ever tell us? Many times. But let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Which is just one of the many places. The scriptures read like this. Verse 6. Exodus 20 verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah, I see Susie. Okay. So to whom does God show mercy? Those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's go back now to Romans chapter 9, verse 15. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. So who does God have mercy on? Those who love him and keep his commandments. Did God have to tell us that? He didn't. He could have waited until judgment day and said, Surprise! 
But that wouldn't have been a merciful God. God won't do that. God tells us ahead of time exactly what it takes to be saved, and that is by faith. And if you truly have faith, you will love the Lord. And if you love the Lord, you'll keep his commandments. He has told us that consistently from the beginning through the end of the scriptures. And if people don't believe him, it's because of what? Because they don't want to. Because they don't want to. It goes on in verse 15 to say, And I will have compassion, and whomever I will have compassion. What's the difference between compassion and mercy? Mercy is what we don't deserve. What's, do we deserve compassion? No, mercy and compassion kind of go hand in hand. It's pretty much the same thing. Let's go back to Exodus 33, 19 for a moment. What's that, Daniel? I don't see a big difference. I don't see a big difference. No. Yeah, I'd say that's Hebrew parallelism. It's just Paul putting it two different ways to make sure we understand. Shades of meaning when you talk about synonyms, yeah. Some have a stronger meaning, some have a lighter meaning. Some mean more to you than they might mean to me. Exodus 33, 19. And he said, he is the Lord, verse 17, is speaking to Moses here. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion to whom I will have compassion. That is what in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 is translated, I am that I am. But that just guts the meaning. The Hebrew is a yeah, a share a yeah. I will be whom I will be. Meaning, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and mercy on whom I will have mercy. But he tells us on whom he will give mercy. Back to Romans 9, verse 16. So, does so mean we're changing topics? No, we're going to further explain. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That simply means we cannot earn mercy. Mercy is given by the love of God because we demonstrate our love to him. It's two sides of the same coin. We looked at Exodus chapter 20 verse 6. Let's look also at Deuteronomy. I told you it's several places in the scripture, but I ought to show it to you. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why didn't God put an or? I'll take either one. 
Doesn't work that way, does it? Love is the reason we keep the commandments. Yes, ma'am? You have said that love is an action. Love is an action verb. Okay. The keeping of the commandments is that action? That is the action. That is how we demonstrate our love. That's John 14, 15 and 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. So you couldn't do one without the other because... They're intertwined. You're exactly right. You can't have one without the other. Okay. Sounds like a theme song to a show, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay. Deuteronomy 7 9. Because Deuteronomy 5 is just a restatement of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. How many of you believe that love and keep there are participles? They are. Ongoing action. How about Nehemiah chapter 1? Nehemiah comes long after the days of Moses. In fact, Nehemiah comes at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. And observe your commandments. Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel realizes that 70 years have been fulfilled. He prays to God through an open window facing Jerusalem. And he prays this. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Are you noticing a pattern? Good. Back to Romans. We're up to verse 17. For. Whoops. What does for mean? Because. The scripture says to the Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up. That it may show my power in you. And that my name may be declared in all the earth. Go back to Exodus 9, verse 16. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up. That it may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. There are people who read that and say, oh, 
Pharaoh was a nice, loving guy, but God made him a mean monster. Is that what it says? No. It means that God has allowed Pharaoh to be king over Egypt and for Egypt to dominate the world. So that when God destroys Pharaoh and shows to the world that only he is God, the lesson is for Israel and for Egypt and for the whole world. What if Egypt was just a little hole-in-the-wall country with no influence or knowledge around the world? Then the rest of the world would have no reason to notice. But when, when Egypt conquers and rules the world and Pharaoh calls upon the pagan gods and God buries him in the Red Sea, then the whole world would take notice. That there's a new sheriff in town. No, that there's a God in heaven. And it's not Amun-Ra. Verse 18 of Romans 9. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You know, I don't like that word, hardens. Because it implies something that isn't true. In the book of Exodus, what is that Hebrew verb? It is to strengthen. To strengthen. Not harden. Harden implies to make him mean. The word strengthen means to give him courage of heart. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 15, but three of the verses are particularly important. That is verse 8, verse 13, and verse 15, just to give you a fair warning. So Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 8. You know, we may as well start in verse 7, huh? For context. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Why is that important? Well, it tells me who's speaking here. It's the Holy Spirit. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Did God make the children of Israel in the wilderness rebel so he could punish them? No. He said, I set before you today life and death, choose life. And they rebelled. So do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion does not mean God made them mean. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. What works? What did God do? Well, he drowned the Egyptian army. He parted the Red Sea. He fed them with manna from heaven. When they got tired of manna, he gave them quail till they couldn't choke down quail anymore. Gave them water from rocks. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. For 40 years, they didn't wear out, and they still fit. And some of these people coming out of Egypt were little children, and the shoes still fit. Talk about miracles. 
Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They always go astray in their heart. God did not make them disobedient. They chose to be disobedient. And they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rests. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. How does one depart from the living God? Deuteronomy 8.11 says, by failing to keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments. So who's Paul talking to? He's talking to believers. Do not have an evil heart of unbelief that causes you to depart from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now we get down to it. How do they harden their hearts? Every time they sinned against God, the heart got a little harder. Every time Pharaoh said, no, I will not let the people go, his heart got a little harder. He got a little stronger in his courage. I will not give in. Verse 14, for if we have become partakers of Messiah, we have, if, we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So what if we do not hold our confidence steadfast to the end, then we are not partakers of Messiah. Verse 15 says, While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then of course I have to add Hebrews 4 verse 7. Again he designates a certain day, saying in David, that's in one of the Davidic Psalms, Today, after such a long time as has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You harden your heart by sinning against God. Every time you sin, the heart gets a little harder. Sin gets a little easier. The conscience gets a little more seared. Back to Romans. Chapter 9, verse 18. In the books. Verse 19 says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Paul, remember, is not speaking to the Romans. He's writing a letter to the Romans. He's anticipating them to say, Well... If God wants us to sin and we sin, why is God mad about it? Paul's saying, no, 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 I don't want you to go down that rabbit hole. Does God ever want us to sin? No. Does God ever force us to sin? No. Then why do we sin? Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians.
chapter 2. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, that's the false messiah, the antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, called the lawless one, because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it tells us that he wants desperately to change the appointed times of the Lord and the commandments of God's law. First time, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, here's why they perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Meaning what? They don't want to walk in righteousness. They prefer to walk in sin. Verse 7, and for this reason, because they choose to rebel against God, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that, that the false messiah is truly to be worshipped. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the bottom line. They enjoyed sin too much. To want to turn to worship God. So back to Romans 9.19. You'll say to me then. Why does he still find fault. For who has resisted his will. That's man's logic. But verses 20 to 24. Give us a hypothetical. Of what if. 20 to 24. Let's read it as a group. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So verses 20 to 24 are a big hypothetical. What Even if God had decided to make some people mean, arrogant, prideful, unloving, just so he could throw them into the lake of fire. Would that give us cause to complain against God? The answer is no. So it's a big hypothetical to say, keep your egos in check. And don't ascribe unto God unrighteous motives, which he does not have. Then verse 25 gets back to the details. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. Who's he talking about? Talking about his people. Be more specific. 
I'll call them my people who were not my people. Talking about the non-Jews. That God is going to bring all to him who choose to have faith in him and to worship him, whether they were born Jewish or not. And there's some of the Jewish people who are saying, that's not fair. You're our God. We're Abraham's children. You promised things to us. And Paul's saying, keep your ego in check. And remember that God has made decisions to call people from all walks of life. Go back to Hosea 2. Let's see where this comes from. Hosea. Chapter 2, verse 23. Hosea 2, verse 23. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. I have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Here in context, who's God talking about as not my people? Talking about Israel. So just as God cast off Israel for a while under judgment as Deuteronomy 28 said he would, but then would accept them back when they repent, Paul makes kind of a midrash on it to say, why shouldn't God do the same things to the Gentiles who turn to him in faith? When you walked away from God, Israel, were you any different from the world? And in 2 Corinthians 6, he makes another of these midrashic applications as he does here. 2 Corinthians 6. Verses 16 to 18. Where Paul takes something that was written specifically to and about Israel and applies it to the Gentile believers as he does in Romans. 2 Corinthians 6 beginning in verse 16. What agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. Walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Who is that literally written to? To Israel. To whom does Paul apply it here? To the believing Gentiles. To say that both groups are being treated the same way by God. It says, therefore, come out from among them. That is from the idol worshippers, from the unclean, from the pagans, etc. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Who were those words originally written to? Israel. But Paul makes a midrashic application to the believers. It says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Paul says, as it applied to Israel, so it applies to you amongst the Gentile nations who want to be saved by faith. Does God distinguish between the Jew and the Gentile based upon their ethnic heritage? 
The answer is no. So what does he distinguish upon? Faith versus non-faith. Okay. Hmm. Time flies. Back to chapter 9. Verse 26. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people that they shall be called the sons of the living God. Let's go back to Hosea 1 and see where God said that. What were the circumstances? By now you figured it was originally said to Israel, but Paul's going to apply it to the Gentile believers just as well. You're absolutely correct. But let's go see it. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. We're going to start in verse 8 for context. God likes to name children. So now when she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo Ami. Lo means no, Ami means my people, not my people. For you are not my people and I will not be your God. That's talking to Israel. How can God say that? Because they chose to walk away. What did he say in Deuteronomy 28? If they choose to walk away. Then they're going to be cast into the nations. Verse 10 says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered. And shall come to, play, come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So lo ami, not my people, was for the time that they were in rebellion. But what happens when they repent? He says, come on, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. What lessons should we learn from this? What does God do when we turn away from him and say, I'd rather walk in sin? He'll let us go. But what happens when we repent and says, I was wrong, I want to come home? He brings us back. Let's go back to Romans and see how Paul applies this to the Gentiles. We may have to wait a couple more verses. Verse 27 and 28. Israel also cries out concerning Israel. No, it says Isaiah. Also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Where does Isaiah say that? That's in Isaiah chapter 10. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Verses 22 to 23. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. 
How much? A remnant. A remnant is a small number. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. So a remnant will return. Apply that to Matthew chapter 7. What did the Lord say? For those seeking the kingdom of heaven, the majority are on the broad road. Few there be who find the narrow road. The remnant are on the narrow road. Do you see a recurring theme? Do you ever find a point where all the people, 100%, are on God's side, worshiping God with their whole heart, loving him in perfect faith? Yeah, not historically, only in the kingdom. But God always has a remnant. That's going to keep coming up in Romans and in Isaiah, that God always has a remnant. Back to Romans. We're almost through chapter 9. Verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, what in the world is that? It is the Lord of hosts. Adonai Zabaoth. Used to think it was the Lord of Sabbath. So many people do. That's why I wanted to bring this up. Why does this say the Lord of Sabaoth? It is because the original is Hebrew and there wasn't a Greek word. So they simply transliterated it. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. This is very telling. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, how many people came out? How many were saved? How many were delivered? What's that? Three. Lot and his two daughters. Three. His wife came out. But she didn't make it very far. Three. On Noah's ark, how many people went on the ark with Noah? There was a total of eight. What's the Lord trying to tell us here? If you listen to theologians on TV, when a rapture comes, billions are going to go. I thought you said that. No, you said billions in the tribulation will be saved. Billions in the tribulation will die. There's a countless number that gets saved in the tribulation. How many of the countless number is? I don't know because I didn't count them. Can't count them. Okay, his point is... That God always has a remnant, but just a remnant. Go back to Isaiah 1.9. God brought salvation to the Gentiles so we could keep it alive. So that eventually it would come back to Israel. Isaiah 1.9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us to us a very small remnant, we would become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. But when I say this, it hadn't happened yet. Look up at verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. 
and it is desolate, it is overthrown by strangers. That doesn't happen for a very long time after Isaiah writes it. And yet he writes it as if it already has happened. What do we call that in Biblical Hebrew? That's the prophetic perfect. It can also be prophecy of America. It's reading these verses. Yeah, yeah, it could be. So let's go back to Romans. And now let's let Paul apply this and tell us that I've been giving away all his secrets that he's really talking about the Gentile world here as well as Israel. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Paul says, I'm all confused. The Gentiles who were not trying to achieve salvation by the law have been saved by faith. But that the Jews who've been trying to be saved by the law, they had to be saved by faith too. Let's go to Galatians 3 where Paul explains it in nice simple terms. You cannot earn salvation by keeping commandments. We keep commandments because we love God. Not to earn salvation. Galatians 3 verses 6 through 11. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. That is, if you're trying to be saved by works, what's the wages of sin? death. That's the curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For, quote, the just shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk, of course. What's his point? The law was never meant to be a way of salvation. Who tried to make it into a way of salvation? Man did. Also in Galatians 3, verses 16 and 17. Now to Abraham and his seed, capitalized Messiah, where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, that is, that's when it was given at Mount Sinai for everybody to hear, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. So when God made the promise to Abraham that salvation is by faith, and he shed blood for that promise, what can break that promise? Nothing. 
Can God change his mind then and say, well, gee, now, no, now I want you to keep 432,000 commandments perfectly? The answer is no. He promised in blood that salvation is by faith. There's so many errors in people's teaching that says God gave the law at Mount Sinai as a way of salvation. People couldn't do it, so he had to go to plan B. God gave the law of salvation at Mount I'm sorry. A little louder. <laughs> I didn't get that right. God gave the law at Mount Sinai, they say, as a way of salvation, and it didn't work. So God had to fall back and come up with the plan B. Okay, then let's send Messiah. Yes, that's an erroneous teaching here a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, if you just read the book of Galatians, it says that that was never the intention. Yep, if you read the book of Galatians, it says very clearly that was never the intention. I agree with you 100%. But so many people are taught that, that that was the way they were saved in the Old Testament and were saved a different way. Yep. We don't have to do that anymore because that was their way of salvation. That didn't work. Right. Right. Let's go back to Psalm 89, verse 34. Because Psalm 89, 34 tells us everything we just read in Galatians in one verse. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. God does not break his covenants. God does not alter a word that has gone out of his lips. Sometimes we misunderstand because of translations from Hebrew to English. For example... I've had many people say, of course God changes his mind. God told Moses he was going to destroy the children of Israel, and then he didn't do it. But you've got to realize that they could have translated those same Hebrew words to say, I might destroy the children of Israel and start over with you. And Moses said, oh no, Lord, don't do that. But they translated it in our Bibles as, I will. But that just means they didn't translate it as God intended it. Okay. Mm, back to Galatians to finish chapter 9. To Romans to finish chapter 9. Oy vey. Chapter 9. Where are we? Verse 33. There's just one verse left. As it is written... Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You wouldn't believe how many people think that's just in the New Testament. But when Paul says, as it's written, it's written where? In the Old Testament. Oh my, let's go to Genesis 49 first. It's the first reference where Messiah is called the stone. All the way back in Genesis. Which doesn't mean he was hard-headed. That's not what that means. The word stone, Evan, comes from the word to build. To build. 
Genesis chapter 49, verse 24. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So where we first learn that Messiah will be the shepherd, we also learn he will be the stone. And then in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 13 to 15. The Lord of hosts. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Verse 42. Yeshua said to them, can you guess who the them are? The scribes and the Pharisees. Have you never read in the scriptures? Can you imagine how that hurt the scribes and the Pharisees who think they know every word? They're the experts, the teachers in the law. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is quoted in Psalm 118 which is being sung by the Levitical choirs in the temple as Messiah dies on the tree. He is that stone which the builders rejected. What did Isaiah call that stone? They called it the Lord of hosts. Is Yeshua the Lord of hosts? He most certainly is. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 10. Coming to him that is Messiah, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. There he's blended Daniel chapter 2 with Isaiah chapter 53 with Psalm 118. And Isaiah 8 is blending it all together. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That's from Isaiah, isn't it? 
Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were, also were appointed. But I want you to look at verse 7 again. To you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. Why is it they're disobedient? They choose, yeah. Because notice, to him who, to you who believe, those who are disobedient do not believe. God has always associated disobedience with a lack of faith, hasn't he? Go back to the book of Hebrews just a few pages ago. Chapter 3. Verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They could not enter in because they did not obey. They could not enter in because of unbelief. What does that mean? Cause the disobedience. The lack of faith. Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore says the Lord God. See how it's spelled? What it, should it really say? Thus says my Lord the Lord. Yeah. Behold I lay in Zion, Zion, Jerusalem, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. A stone for a foundation. Paul was referring to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Messiah Yeshua. He is that precious stone that is the foundation. The cornerstone that holds the whole building together. Let's go to Luke chapter 20. Verses 17 to 19. Maybe my watch is fast. No, it's not. Ah. 17 to 19. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. That is, those who fall on the stone in repentance and brokenness of heart. But on him, whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So you can repent and fall on the Lord Yeshua, or you cannot repent and let him fall on you come judgment day. You get to choose. Well, our time has expired. We'll have to pick up next week, that is the week after this coming week, in chapter 10, verse 1. Because next week, Daniel's going to be teaching on Behold, I show you a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery.